A quick heads up, in this series we talk about drug use, mental health issues, and there's a bit of swearing. Welcome to the Brett Whiteley studio. Have you been here before at all? I'm Fenella Kernerbone and this is Art, Life and the Other Thing. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was made, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This podcast is about Brett Whiteley and the big questions his work brings up about the Australian arts landscape. In each episode, I sit down with some of Australia's most exciting contemporary artists and curators at the Brett Whiteley studio to talk about his work and how it's impacted on their own careers. In this episode, we're looking at one of Brett Whiteley's most recognisable paintings, The Balcony 2. To see the piece online, go to agnsw.art forward slash BWS podcast. This piece is part of a series Brett painted at his home in Lavender Bay in Sydney's north, looking out at the view of Sydney's harbour. It's a very joyful picture, and I think this painting is about one of the slightly underrated but incredibly important things that drove Brett Whiteley's art, and that was the love of beauty. Anne Ryan is curator of Australian art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. She says while we often expect art to be serious with meaningful and often political messages, it's not always this way, like with The Balcony too. Sometimes art can just be about what makes us happy and what is beautiful. It's a very lyrical picture, and by lyrical I, I mean it has a great sense of ease in the way that the forms are painted. The forms are recognisable in this picture. We can see trees, boats, structures, the, the, the land forms, and we can see uh, the, the shimmer of, of light on the blue water of Sydney Harbour. But also there's a sense of abstraction about this picture as well, which I think is very appealing. So while we know what we're looking at and we know where we are with this picture, the lyricism of it, the poetry of it, is the sense of it evoking the feeling of what it is to see and to experience this place and this subject. The Balcony 2 is considered by many to be one of Australia's greatest artworks. But how does one painting gain such celebrity? Occasionally, an artist or a picture will come along that really strikes a chord with how people feel about a place. If you think about the paintings of Fred Williams, for example, they, that sense of the, of the scrubby dryness of the Australian bush, once you see that, you sort of understand it and you wonder why no-one ever did it before. And it's the same with this picture by Brett Whiteley of Sydney Harbour. This lovely hedonistic, outdoorsy feeling of, of, of how we'd like Sydney to be and, and the best face of Sydney. Obviously, Sydney is not just the harbour. It's not just beautiful boats. It's not leisure. It's not the, the beautiful, graceful arc of the harbour bridge and the opera house. But it is something. And it is something that, that we treasure as being distinctively Sydney and distinctively ours. And so occasionally a painting such as this will come along that really does strike that chord and this is one of them. stays with us, yeah. yeah. Um, it makes you feel happy when you look at it. It's the picture that I think of when I think of Brett Whiteley. This is the one that you'd come into the art gallery as a kid, when I was a kid at least, in the, you know, the 80s, and this was the picture that was right there and on, you know, in, the, in the mezzanine on that foyer there. But then when you look at it, you're right. You, you feel like you can just jump in there and have a swim. So what is it about this work that just makes, I don't know, it makes you feel like you're at home? You know those dreams you have where you're flying? 
this work can evokes that feeling for me. It, it feels like something that you want to be part of and this painting makes you part of that. Brett Whiteley's former wife, Wendy Whiteley, has her own ideas about why this painting achieved its status. This is a very well-known, probably the best-known of Brett's Harbour pictures. First of all, it's got the balcony, which we used to look out over across the top of the Moreton Bay Fig, which is now doubled in height, so it's much more difficult, the view. It has the bird, which he used a lot, flying across it. It's got a plum tree in the in the left-hand lower corner. It's got the bridge. And then the introduction of this edge, the white edge, it's very clear in this one. And that donates the artist being on the inside of a building looking out of a window frame, which is kind of the, a way of making both the interior exist in your mind and the outside, the view, being the outside of the window frame, which is that white line that goes around the outside. So once again, it's an attempt to do two kind of perspectives. The balcony has a three-dimensional thing. The boats are very flattened. The bridge has got a 3D thing. It's that double distance that Brett uses more often than not. The painting has been described as having a flat picture plane, meaning there's no depth of field and the objects don't look in proportion to each other. But Wendy says the way Brett applied the paint means there's a depth to the colour and hence a sense of depth to the water. Well, this is paint on this is paint on canvas, of course. So when he paints on canvas, the paint is very much thinner than you know, thinner, thinner layers. So you can see in the blue in this, which Brett became very well known for, the blue, this use of the blue. But it's not a flat blue. It's you can see that there are dark shades coming through the blue itself. And because it's on canvas, that's that's very thin layers put on, and then rubbed back with a rag so that the paint doesn't get too thick. So it's the opposite of somebody painting emotion with very thick paint, but it gives a kind of subtle colour to the water, that it's not just a big flat plane itself. It's got depths and shadows and things going on, even though overall it strikes you as being very blue. When we consider what makes an artwork recognisable, subject matter plays a big role. In this case, we can't ignore the fact that The Balcony too is a painting of a very famous landscape. But how does a now iconic painting fit in amongst other great landscape paintings? Here's Anne Ryan again. Some of the most exciting and amazing landscape pictures, of course, are by Indigenous artists in Australia. As time has gone on and as we have had more experience of the Australian landscape, we see the multiplicities of Australian landscapes and places. For some artists, it was the outback, like Albert Namatjira, it was his country up there at Hermansburg. For Fred Williams, it was the dry, scrubby land of regional Victoria or New South Wales. For Brett Wiley, it was Sydney Harbour. And let's face it, most of us live in the urban fringes of this, this continent. It's the landscape that we actually live with. And in, in Sydney, we live with that big expanse of blue water. And so for him, he was claiming that bit of Australia for his own art in a way that artists before him and artists after him have claimed their own bit of Australia and their own landscape within that big tradition of the Australian landscape in art. Claiming a patch of dirt and depicting their own landscapes is what many artists do. 
painting streetscapes, suburban houses, city lights or the bush that borders their hometowns. One contemporary artist who subverts the traditional idea of the landscape is Abdul Abdullah. Uh, my name is Abdul Abdullah and I'm an artist originally from Perth, but now I'm based and live in Sydney. Uh, I work mostly with painting, but across all sorts of different mediums, so sculpture and video and installation. Abdul is a five-time Archibald Prize finalist. He was also a finalist in the 2020 Sulman Prize and a finalist in the 2019 Win Landscape Prize. He was selected as a Win finalist with a work called A Terrible Burden. It's a beautiful oil painting on linen of rolling green hills, moody clouds and an imposing mountain range in the background with the words, a terrible burden, scrolled over the top in white. The work is a commentary on how white artists and colonists have claimed the Australian landscape as their own and not necessarily shared it fairly with the original custodians and later migrant arrivals. Looking at a painting like The Balcony 2 with Abdul, I wanted to know how it stacks up against his own views of Sydney. The, the way that the blue has been applied compared to the white marks over the top and then the, the edge of the balcony, uh, which is in the foreground, and then the, the bridge in the distance, those types of things are very iconically Sydney, I think. Or, uh, iconically Sydney, especially for me coming from Perth and not really knowing Sydney, what I knew of Sydney before moving here was the Opera House and Circular Quay. Now living in Sydney, it's a, it's a bit of a different experience. That particular view of Lavender Bay is, says something else, I guess. It's a view from a particular part of Sydney that I'm less familiar with, even now living in, living in Sydney. So it's, it's a, a, again, an, another sort of strange relationship with those iconic, with that type of iconic imagery and what it represents and who it serves and whose vision it is in a 2020 context. Well, tell me a bit about that. Whose vision is it in a 2020 context? What's How do you perceive this this painting today? I don't want to sound too much like an asshole, but it sounds, <laughs> for me, it's, when I look at that image now, it's the view from a very wealthy person's apartment of a very nice, expensive view that seems so distant from where I grew up and, and the people that I grew up with. So it's, it's, it's foreign. I almost feel like a tourist in my own city looking at that image. Of course, when Brett and Wendy moved into the flat in North Sydney, the area wasn't what it is now. It was an affordable haven for artists back then, with world-famous views, of course. Do you think of it as a, an iconic landscape in Australia? Yeah, it, it is. In, like, it is in the fact that it's, like, so well-known. Like, I've, I've known this painting since, like, the very first paintings that I've that I've seen like um it but I don't know where it sits for me personally in the idea of the iconic Australian landscape and even the phrase iconic Australian landscape has always sat kind of funny with me like particularly from a colonial and a white Australian perspective the idea of taking ownership or taking a claiming a space as, as somebody's own and I'm also very critical of the idea of genius especially when it's applied to an artist um as a way to sort of justify some behaviours that are perhaps ungenerous or unkind. Uh, so it's, it's a relationship with paintings like this and a history of Australian painting that is, that is often really quite uncomfortable. The, the way that we look at the landscape today, the way that you look at the landscape today, considering the 20 plus years of conversation and potential change that might have happened in this country, what, what is the different conversation, particularly for you, that you're trying to get across that may not appear in a painting like Balcony 2, in terms of the landscape? It's, it's a difficult one in particular with that painting to disconnect it from its, like, its value and being read as 
this is a painting that's really, really, really expensive. And to, to remove that cost or, you know, th- that, that market value away from it and to remove the context of who Brett Whiteley was in the Australian imagination, if I was to look at that painting, I'd go, oh, that's a nice painting. And, but that's as far as it would go. For me, it represented an attitude of a generation of Australian artists that felt a certain sense of entitlement to the space they exist in and a certain sense of entitlement over the discourse that, for me, excluded alternative, marginalised black and brown voices in the way that they spoke. So, it's yeah, this is part of an ongoing conversation and an ongoing conversation and discourse that's developing in my own arguments. So, I, like, I'm not, I don't have a clear and concise argument about it. Abdul was first introduced to Brett Whiteley's artwork in high school, and this is still the way that many Australians first come to learn about Brett's work, helping to cement his legacy with the next generation. But just what is that legacy? And is it something that we still need to know about? Or is it time for a shift? Well, I can give you a crafty answer. This is Adam Douglas Hill. My art moniker is Black Douglas, and I work out of Marrickville, I originally hail from Darug country, Western Sydney. Look, we, uh, we take our hats off to Brett for being um, pretty much a basquiat of Australian art. But the fundamental dilemma is that why has no other artist come close to being a, a successive finalist in all three awards? Black Douglas is a three-time Archibald finalist, a finalist in the Wynn Landscape Prize and has won the Kilgore Portrait Prize. Trained as a graphic designer, Black Douglas's paintings are strongly influenced by graphic design. They're big and they're bright, but if you look closely, you'll see thick dabs of paint and the mark of the brush. And if you look even closer, you'll see political commentary about social justice, the environment, and the dispossession of Aboriginal land and culture. When it comes to a legacy like Brett Whiteley's, Black Douglas says it's complicated. Um, there are many dilemmas with his superstardom status. A, a male who got that status. So there really hasn't been a female, but if, if, if there has been a female come close to having the same status, uh, I'm very happy to say that that's probably um, Emily Kenway and... These are moulds that we need to break uh, for obvious reasons. Also, um, when are we going to see an Aboriginal artist celebrated to this extent, save for what I just said uh, of Emily? But it seems like Brett has succeeded in this, you know, superstardom, idyllic kind of artistic lifestyle and it's just been bottled and put on a shelf for museum purposes, you know? And I guess this being able to visit this studio is, an, is a perfect example of that. Mm. So there needs to be more celebrated roughness around the edges in art. And there are obvious reasons why that doesn't happen, but I'm really hoping that those constraints shrivel up and blow away really quickly. And something about the era too. I mean, this is sort of the 60s, the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, there was this time it was male, it was white. This is how it could happen and perpetuate and here we are today. So, you know, nobody gets celebrated in quite the same way necessarily today. So maybe there is a change or a shift. Well, I'll tell you one example of why it's unlikely to change in, let's let's be generous and say the next decade. And that's because the conservatism of this place 
is either going to be disbanded or it's going to worsen. And that's a tremendous impediment on art, as we know, and we see that happening right now in the cuts of funding and whatever. Why Brett made it to where he did, it's a, it's a pretty uh, indicative template and that is you have to go outside of this place. Mm. And so he spent 10 years abroad, as did Jeffrey Smart, as did John Olson. Um, you've got to go to where people are grown up and um, have a much more adult appreciation of your artistic efforts, and that's still the same today. And so that's the advice I say to all of the young people that are aspiring to pursue art. It's just like just save your bucks and get out of here as soon as you can. Go and get the show on your CV in whatever international art precinct OS and come back here and they'll look at you a little bit more seriously. Making it in the arts internationally has long been associated with cities like London and New York, two places Brett was lucky enough to have lived as a young artist. And Black Douglas is right. This would have had a big impact on him coming home and so easily asserting himself here in the Australian art world. But things have changed, so would it be the same today? But what is Australian identity to you today? Like, what is Australian identity to you today, but in, in particular how it's represented through art, identity in Australian art? Australian identity today in art is as trepidatious as it was when I began painting. It had really, really hasn't, pretty much hasn't changed and in the sense that for the most part on most institutions, major institutions, you'll still hear a foreigner ask, why isn't the First Nations artwork immediately in the foyer when you walk into the institution? And so, sadly, uh, I'd like to see that change and that's what I'm advocating for. However, I know that I'm walking on a fine line whilst trying to negate the Archibald and the other prizes as well without rustling the feathers too much or soiling the, soiling the collectible rug on the floor of the dining room. <laughs> the acclaimed artist Vincent Namajira recently became the first Indigenous Australian to win the Archibald Prize for his portrait of football icon Adam Goods. It was a big moment, one that took 99 years. There are many takes on the Australian landscape. We've heard about a few of them in this episode. But Brett's take on Sydney makes a very particular impression. And it's undeniable. It's that blue that is at the heart of this. For me, I want to describe it in terms of um, colour and mark, really. This is Nicole Kelly, a painter. She won the coveted Brett Whiteley Travelling Art Scholarship when she was just 22. Of all of the artists we're speaking to in this episode, Nicole is the most traditional in terms of what we refer to as a landscape painter. So what does she think of Brett's harbour paintings? So this absolutely incredible blue, um, ultramarine, Prussian-y blue that floods the canvas. And I'm, I'm also drawn to this work for the really gestural white border where you can see the hand of Whiteley. Um, I'm really interested in that because that's that embedding into space that, I, that I'm interested in my figures as well. So, like, 
then the, the white of the boats tie into that border and they're kind of interlocked in the image. The way you see it is pretty different to how I, a mere yeah. mortal, might <laughs> see it. So, so keep telling me about what you see. You know, I'm, I'm seeing obvious stuff probably. Again, like I love this. I mean, I don't even care what it is, but I think it might be a balcony, but my brain doesn't care. But I love the line work that is kind of almost superimposed over these other like marks with like rich kind of texture, textural painting and what that does to space, how how those marks and colour and materiality of paint work to make such a strong image. I don't know. That's that's my love. <laughs> how, does it, how does it make you feel? Oh, good painting floods me with emotion that's hard to pinpoint really. Like it's somewhere between love and pain. <laughs> Really? I don't, and I can't describe why, but um, maybe it's a longing to make really good paintings. Nicole's own landscape paintings are lush and textural landscapes, thick with colour and emotion, providing a false sense of security to draw viewers in and then subtly redirect them. It's this distorted expression of the landscape that exposes trauma and probes the flaws in our relationship to the environment and history. So you said that you're grounded in landscape. That's, that's what we see. Why do you paint yourself into the landscape? I feel like we have made such a significant impact, like humans and especially white humans <laughs> have made such a kind of impact on this landscape. It's hard to... It's, it's hard to look at the landscape and not kind of think about our impact or think about our relationship to it. I feel a really strong connection with landscape, so I see my identity in a way as part of that landscape as well. So it's, I guess I'm trying to make sense of all of these different aspects of human relationship to nature through my work. What makes a painting iconic? Does it come down to a feeling? Is it as simple as saying, this is a good piece of art and everybody else thinks so too? Or is there more to it? Do artworks become iconic because of an artist's place in society, the advantages that they may have? Well, Brett was fortunate to live in a place that allowed him views of the harbour that many people in Sydney would rarely have had the chance to see in their daily life. It gave him the opportunity to capture a privileged view. And a landscape painting of somewhere like Sydney Harbour can have such different meanings depending on who is looking at it. It can simply be a beautiful image of a well-known place, but it can also be an image that projects classism, privilege, ownership. So can an artwork from the past remain as iconic in the present and the future? Will the iconic paintings of this time show images of fire-ravaged bushlands, demolished forests or empty cities. Only time will tell. Thank you to this episode's guests, Nicole Kelly, Wendy Whiteley, Anne Ryan, Black Douglas and Abdul Abdullah. This podcast has been brought to you by the Brett Whiteley Studio in collaboration with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. To visit Brett Whiteley's studio, you can check it out from Thursday to Sunday. Admission is free. I'm Fenella Kernerbone. Thanks for joining us.